0: The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ in His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org.
1: Good morning. Today's scripture reading is from 1 Peter 1, verses 1 through 12. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bethania, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God, the Father, of the Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiable, unfading, kept in heaven for you who, by God's power, are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this, you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes through it, is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about this grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating that he when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It is revealed to them that they were serving, not to themselves, but you, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things unto which angels long to look. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ.
0: Thank you, Steve, for reading it twice this morning. Great to see you. Great to see you all this morning. Hello, uh, my name is Paul Lim. If I haven't had a pleasure to meet you before in person, I've been serving here in, at Christ Press uh, since 2016 as a scholar in residence, but also working at Vanderbilt University as a professor of the history of Christianity. So, between Vanderbilt and Christ Press, it's really been an exciting and exhilarating and sometimes uh, kind of challenging journey to kind of balance what it means to follow Jesus at work as well as at home and so uh, that's the other thing that I do at Christ Press is to serve as a scholar and um, as a senior advisor for content for NIFW so uh, just really benefited a lot uh, in learning together with the fellows, Gotham Fellows and um, if you're interested in that once again it'll be an information session in a couple of weeks time and also a session on Faithful Flourishing next Sunday at 10 o'clock. Right, so we have read this text, and this is a First Peter. It may or may not be a text that you read a lot as part of your devotional, but it is a very important text because it is a letter written to a group of early Christians, many of whom were Jewish by birth and by ethnic identity, but somehow their life journey has been transformed or redirected in hearing that the messianic figure, the Messiah that they've been waiting for, has come in Jesus Christ. So he raised a lot of questions as well as answer a lot of them. And so here the Apostle Peter is writing this letter in order to answer some of those questions that have arisen in the midst of it all. And so uh, we have just begun a new series on Peter where we get to hear from, engage with, and hopefully be transformed by the same Christ who walked on water with Uh, with with Peter, and sent the Holy Spirit to empower a simultaneously bombastic and cowardly man. So glad to be part of that series for us here at CPC Old Hickory. I kicked off the series at Music Row last Sunday. So uh, today's sermon is entitled, Elect and Exile, Elect and Exile the Irony of Christian Identity. So the word identity, when you think about that word, and I want you to think about that word and tell me what or who comes to your mind. Identity. Some of us might think of ID cards like driver's license. Some of us might think about identity as a national identity. I'm Canadian. I am American. I am Colombian. I am a French. And whatever that may be, that kind of identity may be there too. The word identity seems to mean considerably more on college campuses these days than, let's say, when I was a college student in the 1980s, between 1986 and 1990, to be precise. Now, as you're still doing your math as to how old I might be, I'm 55, allow me to indulge you a bit on this. When one says identity on college campuses, like where I am at Vanderbilt or University of Tennessee in Knoxville or Western Kentucky or other litany of secular, private, and public universities, it seems to mean something more than just national identity and blah, blah, blah. It's almost always plural as identities and is often spoken of as an inalienable and constitutive part of what makes up the person to be what one is. There seems to be a much connection and can I even say identification with one's own identity. You study who you are. You are who you are. You are what you eat. You are what you wear, even. The downside of that close identification with one's identity means that if I say anything remotely non complimentary or negative or even offensive about you, these are fighting words, but moreover, that puts me very, very dangerously nearly at the precipice of being canceled. I think we are living in a culture of cancellation and identities, and so when when somebody thinks about identity, they think of, oh, identity politics. Well, the upside compared to the downside is that, you know, the upside is that there are so many more identities. And now with the explosion of social media, all of us are instantly more, more aware of all those brands and identities out there vying and clamoring for our likes and purchases and therapies that come for the evaporating second or hour that accompanies that transaction. You know, there are identities one's born with, as I mentioned, and identities that one can choose from, you know, every ranging from you know, whether you're a Manchester United fan or a Chicago Sky fan or the Predators or Yankees, some teams don't even need to say the city's name, like the Preds, and everyone knows the Nashville Predators. The Yankees, people think, well, that's the New York Yankees. And so you buy the jersey, you watch their games. Let's say you're a Bolivian, that's your national identity, and so on and so forth. So what about human identity? Human identity. You might remember a Greek philosopher by the name of Plato who said that a, a man or human person is a featherless biped. So biped means two feet and then feather without feather. Okay. So then just to be cheeky, this other philosopher named Diogenes plucked the feathers of a chicken and said, brought him and says, hey, here's a man because it's a featherless biped. To which Plato responded by saying, hmm, what I meant, not so fast. What I meant is a featherless biped with broad and flat nails. And so there was kind of going back and forth. So from that that moment onward in the Greek debates about human identity, people have been thinking about and debating with and fighting over even about human identity or identities. So then, if you were to choose a lens of identity as a way to reread today's text— Peter will give you, right from the starting block, identity markers of what it means to be a Christian. And the two words, are you ready for them? The two words are elect and exile. Elect and exile. Which I think both of which are going to come across as slightly strange. So my burden of proof as a preacher to you this morning is to demonstrate to you that Without our understanding or renewed understanding or new understanding of what it means to identify myself as an elect person and an exile, without both of which, we're missing the important, the, the, we're missing the boat basically. Peter really wants the readers to understand, these Jewish Christians to understand that to really be loved by God, to really understand something about divine identity through Jesus means that you understand your identity as elect and exile. So i like for the rest of our morning, I'd like to share the three points regarding Christian identity. First, Christian identity number one is elect, as I just said it. Christian identity number two is exile. Number three of the Christian identity was Jesus as elect and exile. You ready? All right, let's jump right ahead. So let's plunge into this text with me. Let's go then. The first point is elect. What does it mean to be elect? We see that in verses one, two, four, eight, ten, and twelve. So lots of places. Half of the the text here talk about what it means to be elect. When you think about the word elect, what comes to your mind? Predestination. Predestination, Somebody actually answered it. That's great. It was not a rhetorical question. It's always great to have somebody actually respond to you. Predestination. What else comes to your mind? This side right here. What comes to your mind when you think about the word elect? Sorry? Chosen. Chosen. Okay, Chosen. All right, chosen, predestination. What about over here? What comes to your mind when you think about the word elect? Love? Love? Loved. Okay, loved. All right, great. What about election as a political election? When I think about the word elect... I don't think of it as a a noun form. I think of it as a verb. We we elect somebody into offices. Midterm election, presidential election, senatorial election, congressional. You get what I mean. So the word, the popular use of the word elect has meant something like a political process through which we select our representatives. But the word elect... In this case, means, as we said, predestination, chosen, loved, and so on and so forth. And I want us to really, I want to, I want you to think about what does that mean to you when you think about the word elect to yourself? How do you know that I'm elect? And that's a great question. That's been the thousand dollar question throughout the history of Christianity because people have been really dealing with and struggling with the question of assurance. How do I know for sure? How do I know for sure that I'm loved? How do I know for sure that God loves me? How do I know that I am actually elect and not reprobate? How do I know that I belong to that great community? And that's going to be the question at the foreground. So elect, but and also the other half is exile. So let's look right ahead. He starts this letter, and he says, I am, and Peter, an apostle of Christ. He kind of identifies as apostle of Jesus Christ. An apostle means more than anything else, a messenger. It's a messenger whose job, sole responsibility, is to take the message from place A to place B and ensure that the message gets delivered safely. All right, so when I think about the word messenger, I always add this word before the word messenger, and it means something to me. And the word is bike, Bike messenger, so, you know, I'm a, you know I told you I'm, I'm a child of the 80s, and after college, I went and worked in New York for some time, and then while working in New York, I, I noticed this ubiquitous phenomenon, at least in New York, not so much in Nashville, these bike messengers, I right? mean, they got this, you know, thing that they're bringing with them, and their singular aim is go from place A to place B with a message, often in their backpacks or some kind of carrying case, and they're going to go and deliver that, come whatever or high water, right, and you, they're, they're going to do it, right? And one, one time I noticed this just shocking scene. I was, you know, walking down the street, and I see this bike messenger zipping by me. And then next thing I noticed is some guy opens the door of the car. The bike hits the, the car door, and he flies and then lands on the feet. And everyone's just gasping, like shocked. And guess what? The bike also landed not so far from him. He gets up, and everyone's so shocked. He got up and just kind of like dusted off. He found his bike, and off we went again. Before people, I mean, they were asking, are you okay? I said, yeah, fine, fine, fine. He went. That's like unforgettable image in my head. When I think about bike messenger, their aim, she or her or, you know, he or him or whatever their pronouns may be, their identity as a messenger means they got to deliver that product, right? When I think about Peter as a messenger, Peter as an apostle, apostle means a messenger of Jesus Christ, That means he wants to make sure there is no mission slippage. That he wants to make sure that people who are designed and destined to hear the message will hear it. So Peter is very urgent in his delivery of this message. What is the message? Message number one, to God's elect. People who are chosen by God. Message number two, to God's exile. People who are struggling in the world right now. And both those things, he, he, does, he just puts them together and doesn't think twice about it. He says, look, part of the reason, part of the way that you know that you're elect is to know that you are actually living as an exile in this world. And I'll have more to say about that. But notice the first, Then what else he says. He says that you are scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia. Thank you, so much. Good brother indeed, I was, I was about to, right, okay. <laughs> well, after preaching last Sunday, I mean, just FYI, I basically stayed in bed Monday through Friday. I couldn't, I, I had this flu and I couldn't go to work and I had to teach remotely and all that, so Jim, thank you. And I had a water bottle up here, but anyway, that's, um, thank you and let's move on, all right, so. Right, so that when he was writing this letter to the Christians, Jewish Christians, and there was a thing. Because do you remember that the, the earliest adopters of Jesus' message were Jews, yes? Because Jesus was a Jew. Did you know that he wasn't a Christian? Trick question. I mean, true or false, Jesus was a Christian? False. Jesus was a Jew. If you want to speak religiously about that, yes. That means that the first adopters of the message of, the, of Jesus were Jews. But then they were now beginning to rethink this question of God, human identity, the pathway of salvation. And they began to say, okay, there seems to be a lot of overlap, but there seems to also be a kind of distinctive elements about this thing called the message or the way or Christianity. So Peter is now writing to this group of Christians who are now beginning to rethink the question about what it means to follow the Lord. And here's what I mean. There are three things about the way that the Roman Empire, the Roman citizens, saw Christians. So there is a book by UVA professor Robert Wilkin called The Christians as the Romans Saw Them. It's a beautiful book, and it really tells us very clearly and analytically how the Roman citizenry looked at this group of, you know, people called Christians. Three things. They're looked upon as weirdos. They're looked upon as weird uh, and losers. They're looked upon as threats. What are they? Weirdos, losers, threats. Now, how many of you in this sanctuary want to say, yeah, I want to be identified as that? I want to be identified as a weirdo. You want to be, thank you very much, Okay. I didn't know you were that weird, but that's interesting. Okay, you want to be, okay, seriously. Early Christian communities were in the eyes of Roman Empire, looked upon as weirdos and losers and threats. Let me tell you why. All right, ready for this? Why were they weirdos? They were weirdos because they were calling one another brother and sister. So they said these people are incestuous because they're calling everybody like, hey, you're my sister, hey, you're my brother. I'm not your brother, I'm not your sister. In the Roman eyes, that was a weird thing to do. Weird number two. What we are about to do in a few minutes, are, what is this? We eat the body of Jesus and, blood of, and drink the blood of Jesus. Does that make sense to you? Does that sound kind of normal? Let's say you move to a new country, and you're not religious, and they say, hey, I want you to try this new religion come to our worship service, and in the, in the, in the middle of it, they say, we're going to eat the body of so-and-so, drink the blood of so-and-so. Are you going to say, huh, what a marvelous idea? You're going to say, what the? Like, that's so weird and strange. I don't, I don't want any part of this. So weird, number one and two, is had to do with the way that they're calling one another, the way that they're really centering their identity on the body broken and bloodshed of someone named Jesus. That's weirdness, okay? Now, number two about loser. Why did Romans think that Christians are losers? Do we have? No, we don't have one. Like, what is the crucifix? Think of the Roman way of execution. Their death penalty came to them by what? By way of execution. Now, let's think about Christianity. Who was the founder of Christianity? Jesus. How did he die before he was resurrected? He was crucified. That means in the eyes of Romans... This guy is a loser because he's a publicly executed criminal. You know, for the Roman Empire, for them to demonstrate who's in charge and for them to show who's really got power, this is how they do their execution, crucifixion. They're not going to hide, crucify somebody in some backwood somewhere. No, they're going to crucify them on 9th and Broadway in downtown Nashville. And where all the tourists come and all the people come, students who go to Hume Fogg will see it, and all the tourists will see it. Ninth and Broadway, they'll crucify somebody and say, look, let me show you what happens to people who go against our ways. So Christians were seen as weirdos and losers. Now, why would they be seen as threats? What, about, what was so threatening about this message of an executed criminal? Here's why. You ready? Christians were saying, Christ is Lord, right? You know that word, right? Christ is Lord means the word, Greek word Lord means curious. That means somebody who is a mightiest potentate, whose authority can never be thwarted or, you know, kind of opposed. That means that in the Roman Empire, they said Caesar is Lord. That means for the Christian community to say that Jesus and not Caesar is Lord is a political threat. Because in the Roman Empire there's an imperial cult, that means that emperor was worshipped. Then, for these weird, loser people who are a major threat to Roman Empire, no wonder that these Christians were misunderstood, maligned, and marginalized. That's why Peter is writing to them to remind them that even though life is challenging and really, you know, kind of antagonistic, I want you to know that you're chosen by God. I want you to know, and it says in verse 3, verse 2, we have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Your election is not predicated on your knowledge. No, it is predicated on divine knowledge, knowledge of God the Father. But it's not just some kind of cold knowledge. Verse Second half of the verse, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit. God the Holy Spirit sanctifies you because God loves you loves you so much so that you will be obedient to Jesus Christ because to ensure that you know that you're elect, God has sprinkled that blood of Christ on you. And that's a really a powerful, powerful thing. Being part of the elect means security and unshakable foundation for your life. Come inferno or high water, I am okay because I'm covered by the blood of Jesus. As it says, the elect are sprinkled with his blood. As, it that it, as strange as that imagery might be for us, for the first century Jewish Christians, they knew that to be sprinkled with blood refers to animal sacrifices. That means substitution. That means sacrifice. That means some animal, some other animal, someone else had to take my place of shame, death, and destruction. As a result, being elect means in verse 4 that we have an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. That inheritance is kept in heaven for you. That means you, are a, you have a trust which will never wear out. Let's say you're a trust fund baby, trust fund child. Imagine you have a trust fund that will never wear out. But here is the thing, though, that you will, never act, you, you will not be able to cash in completely on it until then and there, until you get to heaven. Then you have to then reorient your thinking to really start believing that there is heaven that I'm actually awaiting and journeying toward. Furthermore, as a result of knowing that you're part of this august crowd of those chosen by God the Father and sanctified by the work of the Holy Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ, means that you have this joy glorious and inexpressible, even though you have never seen him, you love him, Even though you don't see him now, you believe in him. So, the trouble with the first century Christians in Pontus, Galatia, Asia, Bithynia, and Cappadocia was that almost none of them saw Jesus live in person. That's why he says that even though you don't see him, you love him. And even though you don't see him now, you believe in him. All of that because your end is secure. You are chosen because you know that you're chosen, because you have that heart knowledge that cannot be shaken by any earthly disasters or tragedies, that you know you're secure in Christ. And then, furthermore, verses 10, it says verses 10 and 12, then he says, Okay, I want you to know something else. These great prophets in our ancestry, they were looking intently, searching intently to know. That what the time and the fashion of the coming of the Messiah was. That they were deprived of the knowledge, now you know. So you have that leg up, you have that advantage over them. So this is a great delight of being elect. Furthermore, verse 12, prophets knew that they were not serving themselves, but you. And as a result, even angels long to look into these things. That means that God's mercy and election, both of Israel and of the church, there was absolutely no room for boasting. There' was room for security, there's a room for deep confidence and comfort, but there's no room for boasting because they knew that it wasn't because of their desert that got them this sense of being elect. Let's move to the second point then, and that is exiles. So Christians were known as elect, but also as exiles as well. Exile. If God knew precisely what God was doing, why would God make them exiles? If God knew exactly what he is doing, and you fill in the blank. If God knows exactly what he's doing, if God is all-powerful and all-loving, why do these things happen, we ask? Whether it is something that happens a few weeks ago here in our city of Nashville or someplace far away as Cappadocia in Turkey and modern-day Syria with 50,000-plus victims of earthquakes, we have to raise that question, and we do as human beings, as sentient and sensible human beings, we are bound to ask those questions. And Peter is not unaware of them. Peter is not unaware of them, and he's going to address them in this way. So there was a reason why many did not want to embrace, so why do people become religious? And sociologists and anthropologists have been studying this phenomenon for a long time. And it seems to me that uh, sort of an emerging consensus that people uh, are religious because they're born that way. One. Two, some people become more religious when they have babies because they want to teach their children about what is good and true and beautiful. Three, some people become more religious when things become challenging in their life, they turn to someone bigger and higher than themselves when tragedies strike. And precisely for that same circumstance, some people turn away from religion. They're like, okay, enough is enough. So it can be a calamitous circumstance Maybe may bring an individual say, I want to get to know, I want, I want some answers to this. Maybe I'll find it in Buddhism. Maybe I'll find it in Protestantism. Maybe I'll find it in Catholicism. Maybe I'll find it in whatever you fill in the blank. Or some others may say, you know what, this thing happened in Green Hills, this thing happened in Turkey, this thing happened in, you fill in the blank, I ain't going to believe no more. That could be that too. So exile, so the experiences of our life journey often shaped the way we think about these things. And so, um, this is a very important point. Jesus, again, for the early Christians, they had a double burden. Their founder was crucified, meaning that he was executed as a criminal. But then the other thing was that They were claiming that death did not contain him. He was resurrected to life. That means that death could not have hold over Jesus. And yet many of the followers of Jesus were experiencing premature deaths. So why would God let them go through experiences of exile unless God really had a deeper purpose here? Why couldn't or worse yet, why wouldn't God rescue them from their shame and suffering if God could or would? It is called a problem of pain or the Odyssey, And I'm not going to go through the answers here all along, no, but I want to share what Peter says. Peter in this text says, your situation is not a freak accident. He uses the language of predestination as a way to anchor that or as a result of divine mission drift or failure. God knows what he's doing, although it is clear that you might not know what God is doing. Notice the language of that foreknowledge as a basis of divine election. Your status is that it's not static, it's dynamic. God, the Holy Spirit, is continuing to mess about with your life in such a way that the primary mission and function of the Holy Spirit is to to make you more and more like Christ in the face of suffering, in the face of tragedy, and so on and so forth, right? And then, you know, it is really important to really think about this point. that It says in verse 5, Right here, who says, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. And it really kind of anchors it in verse 6. It says, now for a little while, you may have to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. It says, God, he minces no words. There will be all kinds of trials that you're going through. But I want you to know that there is God who knows what is going on that this did not happen overnight, that God didn't know, woke up one day and said, I didn't know it was going to happen. No, but then it says in verse 7, these things happen so that the genuineness of your faith is going to be proven not to God, but to you. And he says, I want you to know that you're exiles in this world. I want you to really think about this, okay? I've been here so for seven years, and, I, and there are two places I love to speak more than any other places. You know what they are? This sanctuary right here, And gathering room. I speak in a lot of different places, but two of my favorite places are here and across the hallway. That means I love speaking here, I love you all, so can I tell you something hard? Here it is. For many Christians in North America, the idea that we are exiles doesn't sit well with us. We don't think of ourselves as exiles. For our Christian sisters and brothers in Syria, for them, the identity of Christians as exiles, it comes very naturally for them. Of course, life around is hard. We're getting persecuted. We're marginalized. We're misunderstood. We're maligned. Of course, I live as an exile. Many North American Christians have no problem with the sense of being elect. Yeah, we're the chosen nation. Look at us. We're a city on a hill. Blah, blah, blah. Therefore, the sense of being elect nation, elect nation of Christians, we don't have a problem. But I think we really need to cultivate a sense of what it means to live as exiles. Because Peter will say to his readers, remember your life, you are strangers and aliens and exiles in this world. Let me show you what I mean, okay? So let's say we were to take a trip from Nashville to Jerusalem, okay? that's And many of us have done it recently. I, I heard several of us. So it's great. But then the way to get to Jerusalem, you cannot fly directly nonstop from here to Jerusalem. You have to stop somewhere. Let's say we're going to stop in uh, London. So I lived as a as a graduate student in England. I love England and you know all that. But let's say we, we were to stop over in England. Let's say you know a hundred of us were to go. We're going to go to Jerusalem. That's our destination. But we stop over in London, and some and out of a hundred, eighty of you fall in love with London. They say, Oh, I love chip fish and chips. Oh, I love, you know, this the warm pint of beer. I love this great kind of, you know, uh, juice that they have, concoction that, whatever. And you say, Paul, let's actually stay here. I love England and let's make this our home. You know what is your problem? What is our problem is we have substituted a layover for our home. Let me say that again. 80 of us had a mission drift. We mistook a layover for our eternal final destination. I love fish and chips. Believe me, I love fish and chips, but I cannot eat that every day. I will not eat that every day. I love a nice cold pint of beer, but no, I'm not going to make that the reason why I'm going to stay in London and not go to Jerusalem. Let me put put it it all the way home. I love, you know, I, I travel a lot for work, so... And now Nashville has changed a lot, right? Nashville airport has changed a lot. You know what I love about Nashville airport now? Terminal D. Oh, there are lots of these barbecue places and went and sushi places. They're fantastic. But can you imagine? Can you imagine me coming back from somewhere and I, and then Mickey's ready to pick me up at, you know, at the, at the airport. But I fall in love with Terminal D. So I'm going to get me some sushi here. I'm going to get me some barbecue here. I'm going to have another, you know, nice tasting of, you know, whatever that cheese board that, whatever that is called. And, you know, have charcuterie. Okay. That's the word, right? Charcuterie, right? I'm going to have some charcuterie. I'm going to have some barbecue. I'm going to have some sushi. I'm going to hang out at Terminal D. Wouldn't you say, Paul, you must be, you must be not. You must be crazy. You've gone out of your mind. Amen. That's you. That's me. We think we're home when we're at Terminal D. You're not home. That means you have to understand your life as an exile. We're not home yet. To park yourself and stay at Terminal D overnight, they're not gonna let you stay overnight. They're like, no, no, you gotta go. No matter how great the music to honky-tonk is, you can't stay at Terminal D. You can't stay in London. Dearly beloved, let's remember your life as an exile. And let me tell you why. The third and the final point is Jesus as our elect and our exile. Jesus, in his journey to incarnation, he became exile for us. He who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become righteousness of God, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21. Christ is our election. Ephesians 1.4, Paul says, God chose us in Jesus before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, God predestined us for adoption as children through Jesus Christ. Our election is in Christ. That means rather than thinking about what I have done or haven't done, rather than doing this incessant navel-gazing, I need to look to Christ. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Because as you turn your, your eyes from away from self and unto the Savior, you will see all the beauty of Christ. All the goodness of Christ, all the truth of, truth of Christ shining through. So then, what about this table right here? Jesus as our exile. He did not have to come here, but he chose to come. He was chosen for the task. He became our elect. He became our substitute. But he also became our exile. Let me show you why. When you come up here, as Pastor will lead us to the table, That means you're going to eat the body of Christ and drink the blood of Jesus. Again, let me ask you, does that not sound weird? Eating someone's body and drinking someone's blood, right? More than any of the weirdness is this at the core of it all. means that Christ, his body was broken for you. My body that needs to be broken, my blood that needs to be shed was shed for me. That means Christ became exile for us journeying to the land, journeying to the far country, Christ is our prodigal. Look at this table, friends. As you come to the table, be reminded and be excited of the fact that Christ Christ is our elect as well as our exile. He became exile in my place. When I should be banished and going into exile existence, Christ said, Father, I will go for your glory and for their election. And he did that. So he's inviting us to this table now. Dearly beloved, don't stay at Terminal D, remember? And do not stay at London. London's a great place. You know, lived there for four years. Beautiful place, lots of great restaurants. Not back then, but these days I think they do. Fish and chips, I can tell you where to go. But go and come back because, you know, you're not home yet. In London or Terminal D, no, your home is where Christ is indeed. Let's pray together. Gracious God and glorious Lord, we thank you. Thank you for the ongoing ministry of Christ's prayers where we love and we bring to light people, placing and things in the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus, whose body was broken and blood was shed. And in that, we really come to understand our reconciliation in the work of God. Thank you for who you are and whose we are. And in that, we find our true rest and glory. In your name we prayed. amen.